You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jared Chung, who is using Django and Python to build a platform that's basically Stack Overflow, except focused on answering career questions from underrepresented youths. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, happy to have you on. Uh, do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Sure. So, um, so I'm Jared Chung. I'm the executive director of Career Village and one of the two founders of the organization. Um, CareerVillage.org is a, a, a technology nonprofit organization, and as you said, Stack Overflow for careers for youth. I think that that's that's pretty spot on. That's ninety nine percent of the time. That's what we're doing is is, is crowdsourcing career advice for young people in the form of Q&A. Um, there's obviously a little bit more that we do as a nonprofit that helps young people prepare for careers. And um, we crowdsource other things for students, including, you know, we do some crowdsourcing of, uh, of, of things for their to career to-do list, or we give them feedback on their career goals, things like that. But, um, but for the most part, you know, really using technology to enable a large number of people to be a backup uh, set of career advisors for young people who often really just don't have anywhere else to turn. Um, and the organization is, is uh, started on Django way back in the day, 2011. Um, at, at this point now, we've served career advice to about four and a half million people. Uh, I've got about 65,000 volunteers across the world uh, who have been giving advice to the students um, so far. Uh, and uh, it's been a real privilege to work on. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, four and a half million people. Is that registered users or just can you ask uh, questions anonymously also or no? Yeah, anonymously as well. Um, the uh, the, four, the 4.5 million, you could think of it as um, sort of uh, readership. Um, so the number of people actually asking questions, just like on Stack Overflow, you know, the number of people asking questions is much smaller than the readership. And um, in a lot of ways, Stack Overflow is a pretty good analogy for a lot of the dynamics on Career Village. We have a large readership, small number of people who are actually generating most of the content, but we're okay with that. Um, we know that a lot of young people who have nowhere to turn and they turn to Google or they turn to Siri or they just turn to the internet at large to try to find something in anything. And in most occupations, there's really not much out there. Um, or what's out there is, is is very inaccessible for students. So we want to be there in the search results. We want to be an open access, you know, quick to read platform, just like Stack Overflow is. Right. Okay. So you mentioned this was up and running since 2011. So nine years now running in production. Yeah. What was the development time for this before it launched? Well, in the summer of 2011, my wife and I were working on a youth development um, a set of youth development uh, um, volunteer activities on our own and had the idea to um, to build it as a QA and a um, that would be more open access. And then in the fall of 2011, we reached out to educators to see if this idea had legs and actually convinced several educators to, uh, to agree to, to, to use it if we built it. And in the, uh, the holiday break at the end of 2011, it was during Christmas break, um, I got together with some friends in a, a conference room in Boston, and I think we built 
the sort of beta version of the site in, I don't know, four days or something like that. Uh, I bought everybody pizza and we just kind of slapped it all together. It was up and running and in classrooms in January 2012. Wow. So like a hardcore pizza hackathon four days later. <laughs> it was a pizza hackathon. And and I have to have a huge shout out. We, 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 we sort of started by forking uh, an open source Q&A uh, platform built on Django. And, you know, that made it possible to do that, right? I think to sort of the open source community is incredible. And there's in most other industries, there's nothing like it. And um, that has made it possible for small, you know, fledgling nonprofit organizations to throw up something in a week that you can actually have in a classroom. Right. So now fast forward nine years later, do you still use that fork of that project or did you like incrementally rewrite it to your own stuff? We incrementally rewrote nearly every single thing. There's still some, uh, I don't maybe it's not the right word, but there's, there's still some smell of the original project here and there and some like sort of early architectural design things that we obviously inherited. But man, I mean, it is it is really almost entirely new. And, and that happened consistently and slowly over the whole nine-year period. Right. So there wasn't like a, a night where you woke up and you were just like, wow, I need to do the grand rewrite. We never did the grand rewrite. Um, and I never really seriously entertained it. There was never a discussion of whether we even ought to do a grand rewrite. Right. So, I mean, this started nine years ago. Uh, you mentioned basing it off of that open source project. Was that like your primary reason for going with Django? Or did you look at some other uh, frameworks and languages along the way? I mean, the first thing, just for context, back in 2011, I was learning to program. I had I had been, I think, programming for just about one year by that point. Um, I think as a kid, I had played around with a website here or there. I used GeoCities or something way back in the day to slap up a website, but was actually um, programming with Python for just about one year before we started Career Village. And um, so I knew I was going to use Python. And back in 2011, the decision that everyone around me was sort of like urging on us was, you know, are you going to use uh, Rails or are you going to use PHP or something? And so when I decided I was going to be using Python, which is what I knew and what the people around me who were mostly academics at that time were learning, Django uh, was pretty solid. And um, and the fact that we had a, a Q&A open source project that was ready to be forked was sort of icing on the cake. And that tied my hands. I said, look, at that point, um, we should we should work with what's out there and see if people even really want this thing and not overinvest in creating a brand new framework. Right. And here we are present day. Would you say that uh, you are happy with that choice that you've made? Extremely lucky, extremely happy. Um, I think it's worked out extremely well. Django continues to be a very well, if not even more vibrant and supported community. Um, we're now in, we started, when we started, we were Django 1.3 and now we're, you know, now we're, as a community, Django just released the the, the alpha for uh, 3.1, and um, Career Village is now running on 3.0. We'll upgrade to 3.1 soon. So it's been very good. Obviously, Python, over the past nine years, Python has continued to become even more, uh, even larger and more important um, in, in, in sort of the broader world of software development. So it's been, I, I, I think I really got very lucky to have been learning Python at that time um, and have found a Django project to to, to fork and now it's it's um it's really been working very well for us yeah at this point python is one of those languages where you can almost google like any possible web development related question and find at least something to go off of you know it's not like 
you know, you're not charting the way for most things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it feels that way. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, the term we here a couple of times. Uh, at this point, are there multiple people developing this project? Yes. Um, and the, the way I think about our engineering team is sort of three concentric circles. So in the innermost circle is is employee like salaried employees of the nonprofit organization Career Village who are working on engineering. And there's only one person in that circle. It's me. <laughs> um, the next concentric circle is um, uh, contractors who are amazing. We've had a very long relationship with um, a particular contractor, Sophie Labs in Uruguay, who've been incredible and been really integrated team members along the way um, for many, many years. And then the, the, the concentric circle outside of that are pro bono volunteers who are individual engineers who are contributing pull requests um, to help us out with whatever they, their skills allow them to help us out, help us out with. And those circles are all kind of growing. I, I won't for long be the only one in that first circle. But I think that the, the pro bono volunteers one is probably where we're going to see the most growth over time, um, where more and more people, I hope, will continue to, um, to come in get the project running on their machines and um, and help us out with new feature development, with tracking down weird and interesting bugs, um, which are my favorite type of bugs, <laughs> and, um, and helping with things like um, architecture and stability and uh, just setting us up for, you know, the next nine years, right? Yeah. Wow. I didn't even think about that then. Is this app open source then that anyone can just submit a PR for whatever? Um, it's... Uh, Almost. We're, I really want to uh, make the repo public this summer. Um, so my hope is that um, maybe by the time folks actually hear this episode or perhaps soon, soon thereafter, it'll be public repo. Um, but in the meantime, we've had pro bono volunteers who have been, um, who have been sort of getting trained in to join the, the, the private repo. Very cool. So swinging back to how you have uh, Django set up here, are you using any of the built-in features for Django, like the admin or anything else? Yeah, we're definitely lean heavily on the admin. Um, the built-in admin is pretty fantastic. Um, and for those who haven't used Django before, um, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's really quick to just enable your staff members, your team members to make direct changes to, um, to you know, whatever the content is that you're managing. Um, and so my 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 team members who are not technical, which is most of the staff, almost, almost all the staff of Career Village is non-technical. Um, they're community managers, they're, um, they're support, they're partnership managers. They're doing, quote unquote, regular um, non-profit-y things just in a tech context. They need this kind of, they need constant access um, to a lot of the admin tools. So that's been really great. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that Django does that, we also benefit a lot from that. I don't even think we really, it wasn't a part of our initial decision-making, but we've recognized the awesomeness of it. So for example, the way it handles, like the ORM, the way it handles um, uh, database tables, migrations is a great part of Django that I didn't even realize was so amazing um, until I saw what we would have been doing otherwise. The caching layer we use a lot of because it's a very read-heavy application. And then, uh, you know, an enormous shout out to the ecosystem. Because the Django packages that are out there are pretty fantastic. And there's a lot of them, uh, well-maintained. We use a lot of Django packages. Yeah, do you want to get into maybe a couple of them that are really useful for the type of app that you've built? So there are a lot of things that 
that you need to use around Django in order for Django to really work in production. And so I think the quality of the packages that are available for using Celery, for using Django with Redis, for um, Django REST framework, um, just all these things you need that provide additional functionality or integrations into the other parts of the stack, those are pretty solid. And they don't ship with Django, but that's okay because the package community has um, really a lot of these things ready to go. Okay, so you mentioned uh, Django REST framework. Is this an API-based app then with uh, some type of JavaScript front end, or is it more server-side templates with Django templates? It is mostly server-side rendering with Django templates. Um, the reason we use Django REST framework is that there is also an API that we use to serve career advice to third parties who want to surface it, um, usually other nonprofits who want to be able to use Career Village career advice in the context of their application. Um, but I think it's an important decision people make when they're running a web app these days is am I doing mostly server-side rendering or am I going to use a front-end JavaScript framework? And we are we are mostly doing that server-side rendering. We did introduce React into our stack a couple of years ago. And the reason we introduced it was that there was a very particular part of our application, which is very experimental. It was the career to-do list. And we wanted that one to have a much more front-end reactive kind of feel to it. So we introduced React. And there's been an interesting discussion on our team, especially the sort of first two concentric circles of me and the, and the contracts staff, um, is to what extent should we continue to have React in a part of our application and server-side rendering in most is that does that make sense is that you know i mean what i felt is that there's sort of once you start to introduce react there's a little bit of a pressure to sort of reactify all the things and um and the reason i resisted that there's a couple reasons one thing one reason i resisted that is because we're sort of a stack overflow like interaction a large number of our target users are seeing a question page with an empty cache, because they're young people, often on a mobile phone, because they're often underrepresented in many cases in poor communities, often with a very bad internet connection. I do not want to load any JavaScript that I don't have to load on their, um, you know, on their on their phone, right, on their browser. And so there's just been a little bit of pressure to say, if we need React in a special part of our application like the to-do list, that's great, but let's keep it there and let's not have it. Um, over in some other parts of the application. And I know that that if you like using React, you know, there are ways around that. There are ways to sort of reduce the, the weight of it, but uh, we haven't really gone there yet. And, um, and, and that's the first reason. The second reason, frankly, is that I don't know React that well, um, whereas I do know those, those classic Django templates very well. And I think one of the things I've learned over time is that I, I've, I try to avoid too many theoretical discussions of what the best tool is, because as a nonprofit, you just tend to be really under-resourced. And so you, you have to make a little, you know, make decisions that are really practical, very practically oriented. And so recognizing that, you know, I'm a key member of our team and I'm not as familiar with React, we're not going to reactify everything. Or when things go down on a Saturday night and I need to fix something, um, I'll be calling uh, some of our contractors at a time when I really would rather not have to. Yeah, no, you made some great points throughout the uh, last couple of minutes there. And yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with tons and tons of JavaScript and like, you know, WebSocket connections, that is like basically like a combo for the worst possible thing ever if you have a really spotty internet connection. Yeah, it's 
can be tough and we want to be really, really performant for our students. I'm never happy with how performant. It's always got to be faster. Right. Yeah, it makes sense though. I mean, you're rendering these, you know, answers out that people are looking for. It's like, it makes total sense to be a server rendered app, like just like Stack Overflow is. Yeah. So going back a little bit to the architecture of this application, is it all just one big monolithic app or do you have it broken up into like microservices or is there some like in between here where you use Django apps to separate like a monolith? You know, technically still one repo, one app, but you know, segmented a bit. Yeah, so it is mostly a monolith and there are a couple of microservices that are pulled out. Um, I'd say most of what you see when you're browsing around the careervillage.org website is gonna be in the monolith. and you are right that, you know, Django allows this easy application service. You know, you could sort of take your project and split it into many reusable Django apps. Um, and we do that a bit. And we're starting to do that more and more and more. Um, so I think we have, I'm going to sort of, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but I want to say maybe a dozen Django apps within our Django project. Um, just to give a little bit of a sense of what some of the, the exceptions to the rule are. There are a couple of microservices we run separate. Um, we run, there's a moderation application that we run as a microservice um, because we have to moderate everything on the site. And we do that moderation in Slack with a group of volunteer moderators. So we wrote a custom application um, that allows us to, um, to pass new content through a separate independent microservice, also a Django app. Um, and then on to Slack, and then receive back the results from those moderators. Um, and then another microservice we have, there's a hashtag recommendation engine, sort of machine learning powered, and that, that lives as um, an AWS Lambda function. Um, and um, there's a couple of other tiny odds and ends, but, um, but those, again, those are the exceptions to the rule. Right, wow, those sound like pretty interesting microservices there. Like when it comes, to the one that does the machine learning for the hashtags. Uh, do you want to go maybe into a little bit about how that works? Well, I, I, I'll say when we started doing that project, machine learning was, this was probably three years ago. We thought machine learning, it's the future. We're going to learn about so much. Let's get started. We're going to do it now. And what we learned, what I learned is that I thought that the hard part was going to be the R, like the research, the R, the R and D. Um, there's gonna be like finding a model that works and that has a good job of predicting hashtags. It turns out that really wasn't that hard. I think after a couple of weeks, we had a really good recommendation model. What has been incredibly difficult for our team was getting that up in production, monitoring it, doing data pipelines and all this other stuff you need to do. Um, because the workflow of machine learning is so different from web development and the monitoring of it's really different. The compute resources are so different. We had to essentially learn a huge amount of new stuff. And in the end, we actually pulled back a lot. Uh, we started going, we, we, it started to become clear we were really over-engineering and we weren't really ready for some of the really intense um, new architectures we need to put together. And the field was moving so fast around us, even just what, what AWS was offering was changing quickly. So we ended up, going to a workflow where we do all the training offline or independently and then we um we package up the model as a binary and just ship it to a lambda function and run it as a little microservice there is very little monitoring um it is not it is not best practice end to end but we are recommending hashtags for students and their questions are bet have better hashtags and as a result they get matched better 
to our volunteers. I see. Okay, so it's almost like um like a helper for them to pick good hashtags. It's not fully automated. They still need to whitelist the ones that they want. That's right. And and we didn't talk about the use case, but that's the use case. The use case was students were going in there, they were posting great questions, and the questions had a hashtag on them that was completely not useful for our matching the question to a volunteer. They put on hashtag thanks a bunch or hashtag just need help or you know, something like that. We like, no, we need like hashtag accounting or we need hashtag financial services or whatever it is you're you're trying to pursue uh, professionally. So that was the sort of spirit of the hashtag recommendation service. Right. So I guess it's a little bit more complex than just scanning whatever they wrote for a couple of keywords or something, you know, like accounting or rent or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think initially we were like, let's just write some really great, you know, rules-based, let's just catch the right words out of it. But um, in the end, we found that there was just, this is an easy problem for machine learning. is, is, you know, categorization, classification. Right. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack. So you did mention that you are using uh, Celery and Redis. What about your primary database? Is that Postgres or something else? It is Postgres. Um, and I don't think we spent a lot of time sort of evaluating multiple database options. Uh, we saw there were a few that Django supports very, very, very natively. Uh, Postgres is one of them. We went with that. And I've never had a Postgres problem ever since. Yeah, Postgres is one of those tools where I am not looking for alternatives. It's like when I need a SQL database, I go to Postgres. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, do you use any features of Postgres in here, like full text search or anything else? We are not using too much. Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. And then besides uh, Redis and Celery, I mean, I guess you can go into a little bit about what you use Celery for maybe? We do. So we use Celery pretty heavily, um, and this is mostly for performance reasons. But just when you post content to our application, we have to actually do quite a lot of stuff. The crowdsourcing component relies on a lot of messages being passed around in email or other or Slack or other places. Um, all that moderation stuff I mentioned, we, we sort of cascade a lot of things um, after a student posts a question or a volunteer posts an answer um, or something else gets, gets, gets posted in. So we use Celery to handle all that. And um, Celery is not, again, Celery is also a place where we sort of set it and then have been able to forget it. Um, it. It seems really, really reliable. Yeah, that is definitely up there in terms of like, you know, can you classify this thing as a workhorse? Like, yeah, you can, for sure. Totally, totally, yeah. So when it comes to Redis, you mentioned that you are doing quite a bit of caching. Are you doing like full page caching or just like little, you know, SQL queries, things like that, or somewhere in between? We're, we're, we're sort of like, we kind of, we like cache all the things. <laughs> so Django, Django has a pretty robust caching sort of framework built in. So you end up with the ability to cache things at a lot of layers. Um, and we, I think we use them all <laughs> um, in various places. So we're caching template fragments. We're caching um, whole pages. We're caching whole views. We're caching specific functions and just like all kinds of stuff, all the places getting cached. And sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I burn myself a little bit. I get a little too cache hungry and uh, I cache something a little too long or I, ca- I, I don't invalidate it right. Um, but but it's, it, it has been just one of the easiest and fastest ways to get our, um, our, our page load performance to really, or at least the, the back end part of it, to just be really, really, really quick. Right. Yeah, I don't think you can really get too hard on yourself, right? Cache invalidation is one of the hardest uh, computer science problems out there. So they say. I, I, I'll, I'll give a little shout out there. I mean, the the um, 
the the Django caching uh, library that we've been using the most recently is Django Cache Ops, which has been really great and does take some of the invalidation problem and kind of make it disappear. It's not a fully solved problem. It's really hard, but that's been a really good library. I do recommend it. Okay. Yeah, I have no experience with that one firsthand, but does it deal with things where, you know, if you're updating whatever, some answer, right? Does it know to like update the cache if the user goes back and makes an edit to it? So it's like sort of hands-free for you? Yeah. I mean, if you do, if yeah, if you do it right, if you do it right, it does handle the invalidation for you. And it, it, it it's pretty good. It's pretty smart about recognizing, you know, the way they handle the cache keys is that, you know, when this, when anything that you're, when any object in your database is changing, the, you know, the, the, the cache essentially is invalidated. And that's pretty, um, it's been pretty good for us. Now I've used it wrong <laughs> in some cases and then um, had a cache that, you know, didn't clear. Uh, but, um, you know, once we've learned how to use it right, it's been really great. Right. So going back to like the rest of your tech stack, do you have Nginx sitting in front of uh, your Gunicorn or UWSGI app server or no? So we, we use a, um, we use Gunicorn and we have a proxy, we have Caddy as a proxy server uh, in front of it. And then just to kind of work maybe from the browser all the way through to the back end, it's sort of, uh, it's like AWS for DNS. Um, it's, uh, there's like a load balancer um, and then it's Caddy, then G-Unicorn and then, um, then, then Django. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to the AWS stuff in a second here. One last question for you, though. Do you use Docker in development or production or both? We use Docker. Yeah, we use Docker end-to-end. Um, and I'm not the one who set it up. That was the Sophie Labs team. Um, but what I can say as a, as, a, as a mirror developer on the team who's using it, oh my gosh, it is so much better than what we had before. Before, it was just a lot of challenges with building and deploying and now it's it's just everything's very stable very reliable and um deployment is great it's a breeze um we use uh, jenkins for um for cicd and then uh when the new build is ready and everything's getting deployed to production swap out one container for another and there's, there's virtually no downtime for end users yeah that's awesome and i mean going back to what you said before about you know, maybe at the end of the summer, you'll open source things so people can contribute. Yeah, using Docker in that area probably is going to be very nice, right? Like instead of having to write a 700 page guide on how to get set up, it's going to be like, well, you know, you install this thing like Docker and then you just run Docker Compose up dash dash build and you wait five minutes and you're good. Yeah. And it used to be the case. I mean, if you go back five or six years when Career Village code base was really much more sort of in its infancy, it's just starting to get professionalized a bit. When somebody new, a new volunteer would join our team, they'd be they they'd have it running fully on their laptop on day two or maybe day three, and now it is you know an hour and a half maybe. So on rare occasion, we just had an intern because it's summer, so we have interns starting. We just had an intern who started up had a weird sort of network um, uh, problem on his local machine, but other than that, you know, it's just incredibly reliable. We're we're up in an hour, uh, we're up in an hour and a half. Sometimes I've had people starting up. And they're up in half an hour uh, on their local machine. Right. Yeah, I suppose uh, me saying five minutes is a bit optimistic there. It does take a while for these images to build. It does. It does. And we bring in a lot of code. There's a ton of requirements being pip installed. Um, we've got the node modules folder that is huge. And um, it's a lot of things that are getting uh, built and run um, in those containers. 
right? Actually, we didn't get a chance to go over that. Do you know like high level maybe like typically how much lines of code you have on the back end? Just so we can get a scope of like, you know, the size of the project. If I exclude node modules, which is all vendored in, right? Um, it's tens of thousands of lines of code. It's somewhere in the, I want to say probably 40 to 60,000 lines of code. I could be wrong because it's not really a metric that I keep track of, but, um, but it's a lot. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, measuring things with lines of code, but it's like, you know, we only have a couple of minutes to talk about this thing. It's like, you know, that's, you know, there's a big difference. You can relate like, okay, it's 2K versus like 200K. Yeah, and in preparing for this, I did, I took a quick look. I mean, just give one one number I can give you that's pretty tangible is if I exclude node modules, it's about 3,500 files that are in the repo. Now, would you say your test coverage is uh, very good or very bad or somewhere in between? Um, it's a... Uh... It's, it's a work in progress, um, but I sleep. I sleep at night. And I think that's really, you know, at the end of the day, why do you run tests? It's so you can sleep, right? So that you don't worry about it all night long. And I sleep at night. I'd like to see our tests run faster. We have a lot of integration tests um, and not nearly as many unit tests as I would like. Part of the reason it's like that is like, I'm able to sleep at night partly because I'm willing to wait a little bit more to watch my test suite run. And I haven't had time yet to like convert everything to unit tests. But tests are amazing. I, I, I was resistant, resistant initially. I was like, this can take forever. But once you start to really invest in it, oh, wow, it is the experience of being an engineer is so much better in my perspective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm afraid to even refactor any code that's untested because those tests are what really let you do that. You know, it's like you're a confidence booster. Right, exactly. And so I feel really good now that we have almost everything that an end user does is covered in some regard under tests. I really like that. And I think it's important if we're going to expand that third concentric circle, have more people volunteering to contribute to the code base, they're going to need to see those tests um, to know, to have confidence contributing. Right. Now, speaking about tests here, do you also run any type of uh, linters on the code base as well, like Black or Flake 8? We are using Flake 8. Um, we're probably going to switch to Black, or we're going to add Black pretty soon. Um, and, uh, I'm a big fan of black. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I personally, I have not used it that much, but I do use flake eight and it's so amazing just to be able to run a command against your code base and be like, well, you know, here's like 184 things that you need to fix because they're inconsistent or, you know, something is wrong with them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, was that something you added late into the project or early on? Because I find it kind of funny when it's late, where it's like, well, by the way, there's like 12,418 things. <laughs> we did have this sort of like monster set of commits where we should change a ton of stuff um, just to kind of bring it back up to, you know, readable uh, code. But um, yeah, we did introduce it a bit late. Right. So one of those commits where it was like, <laughs> you touch so many files that you can't even load the commit in GitHub. Yeah, and it's really hard to, you know, you just say, look, make no real substantive changes, just change style, and you just commit that. And um, sometimes you just have to do that to bring to bring things back up again. Yeah. So before we switch over to talking a bit more about AWS, I forgot to mention this one to you. Uh, are you using Webpack or something else to manage your assets? We are. We are we're using Webpack. Yeah. Um, Webpack, I don't. I don't mess with it too much. I, I think we really need to invest a little bit more in our use of Webpack um, and get a little more sophisticated with it. And we're, we're asking Webpack to do a huge amount of work with a lot of front-end um, assets. And uh, we need to make it more performant. Um, and we need to do a better job of code splitting um, our front-end code as well. 
Okay. And now asset-wise, do you use something like SAS then that gets compiled onto CSS or an ES6 JavaScript? Yeah, we do SAS, yeah. Okay. So when it comes to the JavaScript side, are you using TypeScript or no? No, we're not. So speaking of the front end and Webpack, uh, do you use Bootstrap, Tailwind, or some other CSS library to, or is it all homegrown? Um, so there is some Bootstrap in there, uh, but you know, Career Village, we, we I'll say we've invested a lot in the CSS on the front side, on the front end, to really make sure that um, that what we have has a Career Village look to it, and so it's pretty, it's buried pretty deep in there. I think there's a lot of custom CSS. Yeah, CSS is one of those things where. It gets really wild to work on on a big code base, right? It's like just from like a code organizational point of view. Did you find that you had a struggle with that as well? Well, I I think there's a big struggle that I'm having now, just which is that we have a lot of legacy CSS, and I find that legacy CSS that is now uh, not needed anymore. It's actually really hard for us to find. It's a, it's a hard problem for us to try to clean up our CSS, and I would really appreciate folks who know how to do this well to um to give us some advice on it and the it's easy to sort of identify the unused css rules when you're looking at one page but when we're bringing the css for really a huge site like career village which is really a very large site um, if you look at the number of routes the number of pages the number of different layouts that have to be supported if you look at all that and you try to sort of identify those unused rules across the whole application it's getting really difficult, and we haven't found the tooling yet that we would need in order to be able to do that with a lot of confidence. So I'm a little worried. We're starting to develop a lot of sort of um, legacy CSS that that's getting that that that, that could be cleaned up a lot. Um, and that's one of the projects I'd like to take on a little bit more over the coming year from a technical side, uh, is to try to make sure the CSS uh, lines of code really goes down a lot. Right. Yeah, there are things like you know purge CSS, and I'm by all means not an expert on the front end when it comes to this stuff. I've but looked at purge, yeah. Right, and some rules, you know, that we, things are rendering differently on mobile and on uh, desktop, and you've got some things that are happening in certain browsers, and we have to be a application that works extremely well in a lot of environments. Um, we don't formally support IE eleven, but even, but we have users who use it, and we try our best. Um, and so I think there's there's a lot of reasons why it's easy to sort of say in general like we'll, we'll catch your we'll catch your unused css but we have to be really cautious when we um when we actually try to use it um and so that's where we that's where it's been tough just trying to verify that we really trust the tool given our given our constraints in our audience so speaking of aws that you mentioned before and assets here do you cache all of your assets using cloudfront or something else yeah we use the cdn uh, cloudfront um and it's been pretty good i think um I didn't build that integration. I think we sort of pass everything through S3 and then it goes to the CDN. Yeah, it, we do. Okay. Did you use any specific uh, Django libraries to get that set up? Or is that just like batteries included with Django? I don't recall anything super special that we used. Um, the Django collect static command tends to be your entry point for all things related to packaging up your static files. Um, but I, 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 that's also one of those areas where I've been thankful that it's a set it and forget it kind of aspect of using Django. And so as a result, I've forgotten it. I don't remember how we do it. Um, it's not something I have to I have to fiddle with. Right. That's actually uh, an amazing thing, right? I like that idea of being able to forget. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, I, and, and just stepping back a level, I mean, if, out, even outside of Career Village, I'll just it is shocking to me how many tools you need to run a modern web application. 
Um, and it's kind of it's kind of bonkers when I go to our our non technical team members, and sometimes I tell them about how the technical side of our application actually works, and they learn about things like caching and requests and all kinds of stuff. It, their mind is blown right by how many layers of software you need to be running to run a modern web application. I know some of your listeners are thinking like, what is that guy talking about? You don't need that much. It depends It depends on your application. But I'll say for Career Village, you do. You need a lot of stuff. And it's really dizzying. And, and I think for, for newbies, um, we get a lot of young people serving as interns or we're training them up. It's, it's really a hard thing for newbies to get into. Um, once you go from, I've, I've learned some Python to I'm going to start doing web development, you're looking at a lot of learning, um, and the system administration of it all is really, really, really difficult. And I don't know, there's something there that I think is both ma magical and powerful about how we've all been able to work together as an open source community to make these tools available so we can do these magical things on the internet, but also just kind of like tragically complicated that, that it does, that so many things are required. Yeah. Well, I guess we can say uh, it's definitely no longer GeoCities out there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We'll see now it's again. like, well, you know, you develop your app and suddenly the whole other problem of deploying it is out there too that you need to solve. Like, sure, you have, you know, platforms like Heroku, but I mean, geez, it's like, well, are you going to use AWS or Google Cloud or DigitalOcean or 18 other ones? But then it's like, well, oh, you're using Docker. Are you know, are you going to run Docker Compose in production or, you know, ECS or maybe manage Kubernetes? It's like, oh my God. There's like a hundred options just like for that one sliver. Yeah, and I and I think like the way I you look if you if you want to if you want to host a blog, you know we've got static site generators now. That's great, keeps things simple. You know, I've I'm it's awesome, awesome that we have Heroku. I think if you want to run Stack Overflow, which is basically what we're doing here, but with more right with more features involved, then you need like a lot of this stuff. There's like a lot of layers of what you need in there, and and I think. One of the ways that I've dealt with that emotionally as someone who back in 2011 was just learning programming and just care passionately about helping young people prepare for careers. I'm not a career web developer, but over the course of nine years have, um, have found the need to have a legit, you know, production grade web application. One of the ways I deal with that is it's okay. It's okay. Are your students happy? If your users are happy, then you're doing a good job. And if at the end of the day, our site is not, you know, nearly as performing as it could be, or it's not a sync when somebody thinks it ought to be, the question I have to ask myself is, are students getting what they need? And if they are, we are doing a good job on the engineering side. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's funny because I had a guest on a couple of months ago where, you know, he was, I believe, a mechanical engineer professor at a university. And like, suddenly he found himself like, you know, neck high and like Nginx configs to set up like the app side of things for his students. <laughs> but going back to what you said before about AWS, maybe we can get into that a little bit here. Like, you know, which AWS services are you using to host all of this? Yeah, well, uh, Postgres is on a RDS instance. Um, and uh, for the most part, um, everything else we use is, is in EC2. There are a, several EC2 servers. So we have I think at any given random day of the week, we're probably only running one instance for our main production application. Um, but we'll have a couple of EC2 instances running for Jenkins. 
Um, and we'll have uh, an EC2 instance running for Metabase um, and a couple of other, uh, oh, there's, there's another one running for our microservice. There's something running for one of a couple of our microservices as well. So we'll have a few EC2 instances up and running at any given time. So what, going back to uh, what you just said there about Metabase, I'm not familiar with that one. Do you want to give us the TLDR? Sure. Yeah, Metabase is a third-party application that you can use to, um, uh, you can self-host if you want, uh, that gives your non-technical team members um, a sort of dashboard view of your data, and you can plug in or you can connect it to um, your Postgres instance or whatever databases you're running. Um, and it kind of it's a, um, brings all your tools together. And I will point out that uh, setting up Metabase actually done by one of those pro bono volunteers I mentioned. Um, and it has given our team a really great way to uh, keep tabs on this, the user activity. Very cool. Now, it's kind of interesting to see that you do have more instances set up to manage Jenkins than your application itself, which in itself is pretty popular, right? Like millions of people looking at the site. How does that work in the end? Yeah, well, I mean, what you end up with is you end up with a slightly larger production EC2 instance and then like a bunch of little ones for Jenkins, right? Um, so that Jenkins can do a lot of builds of um, a lot of PRs. Um, and, and, and that's kind of how it's been set up. And just because they're so cheap, Really, really small EC2 instances are super cheap, right? And so it's not been an issue to have a few of them up and running. Okay. As for uh, the big EC2 instance powering the site, are you able to get into the specs of that machine? Yeah, it's not, it's not huge. I mean, what is it now? Let me take a quick look. It's an M5 extra large. Okay. Do you know what that translates to, to like CPU cores and memory? Gosh, I don't. But I'll send it to you afterward. You can put it in the show notes. Sure. Sounds good to me. If you want. <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting because... You know, it's cool to see sometimes that, like you mentioned, it's not that large. So, I mean, if this has like, I don't know, two or four CPU cores and like maybe four to eight gigs of RAM, like that's a pretty decently sized box and that's serving a lot of traffic. Yeah. And 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 our traffic is not wildly spiky. There are some times when a group of people, like, for example, if you have a group of 100 people at a company that all want to volunteer at the same time, they might choose Career Village as a volunteer activity they can do all at the same time. Maybe they could do it, well, before COVID, they would do it in their office, but now, you know, they'll all do it at the same time over Slack or on a, on a, on a video conference or something. At those times, we can have um, performance issues. There, we might hit, yeah, we might hit some problems. Um, but, um, but for the most part, Career Village is a pretty, um, pretty performant application. It's pretty scalable because it's mostly just reads. Right. Now, maybe we can get into that a little bit here. Do you also have something like CloudWatch set up so you get those alarms if things start to go astray, like the CPU is spiking for a while? We don't use CloudWatch too much for that. But what we have, what we are using is um, we're using New Relic for um, for monitoring. Uh, we use PagerDuty um, and uh, we use Sentry for error logging. I found them all to be pretty good. I, I have really good experiences with all three. Um, for... Uh, for New Relic, uh, especially, I think that's probably the one I go to first when I want to see how the servers are performing. Um, it's it's pretty fully featured, and I get a really good view. As long as you instrument it right, um, I get a I get a really good view of what's actually happening um, in in our, in our server and where it's falling down. 
Okay, so do you have that all set up to where you can see like, okay, you know, this page load has 12 database queries and they take, you know, eight milliseconds, like, you know, all good stuff like that. Exactly. So when the time comes to actually make things faster, New Relic is really good. And when I need to dig in deeper and I haven't instrumented New Relic in a really sort of detailed fashion, then I just whip everything up on local and I use um, the Django debug toolbar to get into a, the minutia, exactly which queries, how many, what's triggering them. Uh, which ones are slow, things like that. Right. It's awesome to hear that there is a Django debug toolbar. The Django debug toolbar is amazing. If you're a Django dev, you got to use the Django debug toolbar. It's super great. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, I'm super into Python also, but I happen to choose Flask as my weapon of choice. And uh, there is a Flask debug toolbar. And it's, like, probably one of my favorite uh, libraries overall. Like, I would imagine it does similar things. Like, it just tells you how many database queries are going on. Like, you know, all sorts of good stuff about the request that you can just get into in seconds. Yeah. yeah. And it gives it to you all on your browser and it's right alongside the, the page. And it's, yeah, it's really great. Yeah. So do you find yourself using that in development to even help prevent, you know, things that might not be too great to do in production, like, you know, avoiding N plus one queries and stuff like that? Definitely. Yeah. It's super, super useful for that, especially because, look, most of the time we're waiting, we're waiting on Postgres. Right. Um, so that's where I spend most of my attention when we're trying to do performance improvement on the back end. Um, these days, actually, the back end is so, so quick for almost everything you do on privilege is pretty quick. And now my attention has shifted to the front end and really reducing the lines of CSS and JavaScript that that front end browsers need to be dealing with. That's where that's where um, most of the performance gains that remain uh, tend to be. Right. And those are also the trickiest ones to improve, right? Because on the server side, you're in full control over that EC2 instance, basically. I know it's shared, but, you know, on the front end, you know, someone could be having an old iPhone or maybe they have a Chromebook or maybe they have like, you know, a $10,000 iMac, like you don't know. Yeah. And sitting uh, using, you know, borrowed Wi-Fi at their nearby Starbucks or leeching off their, you know, their, 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 their neighbor or something. Um, it, it's, it's, we have to design for the students who do not have optimal computing technology. Right. Bad example then with that 10K iMac, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So going back to your AWS setup here with EC2, did you set this server up from scratch on your own, like hand by hand, or did you use some type of configuration management tool like Ansible or something else? I think we used to use configuration management tools. When we switched to Docker, I think we just set started setting them up with some basic stuff by hand and then letting Docker take over the rest. Um, you know, what I think what, I will, what I'll acknowledge just generally is, what I like to say is I'm not a great programmer, but I am a horrible sysadmin, right? So wherever, and, 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 I, and again, kind of going back to the, like, the constant refrain, like that's okay for us right now. Right. Our, again, our students continue to get career advice. And so, you know, we don't tend to solve problems in our application with infrastructure. We tend to solve them with code um, and tend to orient ourselves toward that. And I don't throw a lot of servers at problems. You know, I, I sort of forgot like how we set up servers often because we don't tend to have to set them up very often. Um, and, and I think for those out there who are listening, you know, who feel like this administration is not something is, is, is sort of a weak spot for them. Like, I know it's a weak spot for me and, um, and I, I'm excited to continue to learn on it, but it's, it's a very long journey and I'm okay with that. As long as our site continues to, to do a good job, um, 
we're okay with whatever that, you know, those blind spots are. We just work toward them. Yeah, I think it's a journey for everyone, right? It's like you mentioned that, you know, things are a little bit tricky now with so many things that you need to learn. Well, recently I did a refactoring on the runninginproduction.com site, like, you know, the site hosting this podcast. And there's now 155 distinct tags. Uh, you know, that's 155 different technology things that people are using. And there's only right now at the time of recording this episode, uh, 36 published episodes. So we've barely scratched the surface of like number of apps out there. I wouldn't be surprised if there's, a, you know, like a thousand different things at some point. Yeah. So going back to your app here, though, do you maybe want to walk us through what it's like to deploy something like, you know, how does it start in development and how does it make its way into production? When we're sort of, you mean when we're sort of, for example, going to do a new feature build or just work our regular sort of workflow? Yeah. So day to day, you just hack on a new feature idea and that's where it begins. Yeah. Okay. So, well, we, you know, let's start with the people side of this, right? So, you know, on Wednesdays, we'll have a team team check-in and we'll talk about uh, whatever engineers need from other engineers to get, you know, unblocked. Um, we don't tend to do daily standups, but we do our standups essentially at the weekly level. Um, and, you know, we're using Git flow for our, our Git workflow, uh, which means we are using feature branches with a develop branch. Um, we'll merge from feature branches uh, into that develop branch after a code review. Um, every pull request that gets created triggers uh, Jenkins uh, a build and um, and that all gets reported back into, into GitHub. So everything's kind of nice and tidy and together. And then, um, you know, when things get merged into develop, they'll go onto the staging server. And when they get merged into the main branch, they'll get deployed to the production server. Okay. So as for the Jenkins side, then, is it a manual step to promote something into staging and then eventually production? Uh, all we have to do is someone someone with the right permission level has to, um, has to accept the pull request into the correct branch, and then Jenkins will automatically deploy from there. Nice. Yeah, it's funny, like Jenkins is such a workhorse, like that thing will just keep on going and going and going. And yeah, but it gets such a bad rap for being like, you know, bloated or like hard to use. But at the end of the day, like it is such a good tool, like it lets you do basically anything you can ever want, ever. Yeah, we haven't, well, I haven't had too many Jenkins issues. I feel like Jenkins has been really great and definitely better than what we had before. I remember um, when we first launched, there was a big feature we launched for educators using Career Village in classrooms. It was a big build. We spent months working on this this new experience. It's a great thing. I mean, if you're if anybody listening is a teacher and you want to use Career Village in a classroom, go check out the educator tool because it is really, really uh, fantastic. But it was a lot of work. And when the time came to have our like push party, I got everybody all over the world who was who was contributing. We all got on a video call together. We had actually arranged for everyone to have pizza at the same time. And then we sat there and it took like 45 minutes for the whole the whole process to go um, to go live and it was it was a little anticlimactic, right? Um, when when we introduced Jenkins and like build started getting faster and faster and we started to iterate on it a bit and um, and now it's really it feels really trivial um, when you want to have a launch party, a push party. Uh, it's, uh, it's much more reliable and much quicker. Right. Right now it's like a non-event. It's like, well, you don't want to party because that should be the most smooth thing happening when you deploy something new. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm happy and we're trying to be really incremental. I, you don't want to spend, you know, months and months and months working on some giant thing and then have everything hinge on it, of course. But, um, 
but anyway, regardless, uh, Jenkins has been has been pretty reliable for us. We had some like weird issues with networking on Jenkins or when you had multiple builds all happening at the same time, some of them would fail because we had port collision or what. I'm actually not exactly sure what was behind that. Um, but um, but Jenkins has been a big improvement over what we had before, which was uh, not Jenkins. <laughs> a lot of manual sysadmin work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of any CI in general. It doesn't really matter the tool that you use. Just pick something because that automation is better than not CI. That's what you, that's definitely without a doubt. Exactly. So how do you manage your secrets, by the way, like API keys, email credentials, things like that? Yeah, so we're using something that I don't actually hear mentioned very often, but it's been like pretty good for us, which is EnvKey. Have you, have you heard of EnvKey? I have not. Nope. Yeah, I don't know. Like, worth a look it's definitely pretty solid because you know what we used to do before is we'd have to be really careful about passing sort of secrets around in files and like that was really always made me nervous and never really liked it um and we use envkey to um to keep secrets and um and to load them up into all those containers and uh it allows us to specify for different environments it just does everything you need to do but um it's not you know, up in AWS or elsewhere, it's it's um it's all in MKE. We've had a good experience with it. Okay. Now you did mention earlier that there's only really a very 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 tiny amount of downtime, but you only do have that single EC2 instance. And we didn't really clarify this one, but are you using Docker Compose in production, or do you just run like Docker natively? We're using Docker Compose. Do you want to get into maybe like how that deploy process happens to where you can eliminate so much of that downtime, even just having one server? I don't think I'm really qualified to be able to get into that detail, to be honest with you. Um, what I do know is that we're swapping out one, you know, we're swapping out containers when you have a new, the new container is ready to go and built. We use that one instead. Okay. So it sounds like you're doing like a, like a blue green deploy, like two things are running simultaneously. And then when the new one comes up, the old one goes down. Yeah. We're hot, hot swap it. Right. Hot swapping, but not quite, but almost, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hot swapping containers. <laughs> so speaking about hot swapping here, where you know things could maybe go wrong, even though you're not doing it technically, uh, what have you done to plan for disasters or unexpected events? So you mentioned you are using RDS. Do you have that set up to do like automated backups or something else? Yeah, a lot of backing up. Um, we do a lot of backing up, and that's difficult now because you have to obviously manage your backups, and you can't have too many and all that, but we do a lot of backing up. Um, and you know, we try to do a little bit of sort of scenario planning. Like I'm a big fan of, of the chaos monkey approach, right? Where you like periodically just say, look, if we don't want to, if we don't want to plan for disasters, uh, being rare, we want to plan, you know, as if there, there are things we really expect to happen in the short run. Let's like schedule in our disasters so that they are like things that we deal with routinely. Um, and we're good at, so, um, this is something I actually want to do much more of in the coming year but just do a lot of um, a lot of practice. Right, like what happens if I just, you know, kill that container running? Will it come up on its own? Like little things like that? Yeah, I don't really want to do it quite this way because I think my engineers will like probably not be super thrilled with me. But if I just go into the AWS console one day and just delete, you know, something, like <laughs> how long will it take for us to get back up, right? And I think it's a good question to pose theoretically before you actually go do it. But um you know, we need to do a lot of that kind of practice, I think, um, because right now everything's not just purely automated. It's not like you shut something down and like it automatically gets sort of rebuilt. Um, 
So I, I'd like to go in that direction though. Right. Well, for now, you know, having database backups is definitely a good thing to have. Uh, we didn't really get into this, but how much data do you store roughly? Like thousands of questions, I guess, or more? Um, well, I'll give you a little, so it, it's somewhere between 100 and 200,000 questions, but the number of records involved in a question can be pretty large. It could be anywhere from like what a single question is composed of maybe 10 to 20 rows in a database and then got about 120,000 registered users. Um, and there's a bunch of odds and ends, other things that are in there. You know, probably Django does, Django's pretty aggressive about having a lot of session data. So you end up with like these giant session uh, database tables um, that you clear out periodically. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember what else is sort of floating around in there. I think that's probably most of the, most of the records we have. Okay. Now, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to answer this one because it's a bit, you know, specific to your business, but would you mind sharing what your AWS bill is every month or at least like a range maybe? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So our monthly bill fluctuates a bit, but typically it's somewhere between two and $3,000 a month for everything in AWS. Um, most of it is RDS, um, EC2 is second, and Elastic Cache is sort of the third piece. Um, but what one thing that we did do over the past year was we um, we just been so consistently using AWS for so long that we ended up um, using one of their uh, savings plans, which is basically you prepay. Um, and when you prepay for you know a year or for a longer contract, then um, you do get a pretty sizable discount. So we did that, which took it down a bit. Oh, very cool. So when you see like sizable discount, is it like 10, 20, 30 percent difference versus not doing it? Yeah. So I, it, and it, that's where, you know, it's all like, it depends, go read the asterisks and like, go check out the, you know, it depends on your usage, but, um, but yeah, it's, you know, 10 to 50% discounts on various types of services. Um, and, uh, I think the place where we got the most out of it was EC2 and maybe RDS, I think EC2 and RDS, the compute piece of it specifically that's where we got i can't remember the details but i don't know sizable 30 percent maybe okay so it sounds like one of those things where if you have very predictable requirements on your compute definitely go check it out exactly and we don't and and, and we do you know we don't run uh, i think if you're doing machine learning you have a whole different calculation but if you're if you have um a small number of servers for a web service for a web application and you don't tend to swap them out or take them down very often yeah that's right very cool. That's a, a very good tip. But uh, speaking of tips here, like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? I think my most important lesson learned is, gosh, there's a heck of a lot of stuff out there you need to know. Um, it's okay if you don't know it all. And as long as your users are happy, that's what matters. And so I, I maybe a bit of a cop out that I'm not giving a technical tip, but it's really more of a sort of social emotional tip of the experience of being a, a, a newbie engineer or a manager of a small web application um, with a small team. It's okay to not use the latest and greatest everything or have best practice on all uh, up and down the whole stack. There's some places where you can't compromise uh, security, you know, things like that for that trust the pros don't roll your own crypto. Uh, Django brings, you know, brings a lot of security best practices with it. All that kind of stuff. That's where it's good to draw upon um, 
uh, projects like like Django and others. But for the other stuff, it's okay as long as your users are getting what they need. Right. So I guess the takeaway there is, you know, pick something, move forward, don't get hung up on things that you might not need or requires you to do nothing but research for the next like 100 years because it's always, you know, it's a, it's a moving target, right? You know, there's never going to be the perfect tool. That's right. And and the the tool proliferation, the speed of tool proliferation is so fast that it means that if you're constantly paying attention to what's out there, you will always be wondering why you're doing it the wrong way or how come you're not using the, you know, the better tool that's out there. But the problem is you'll never be able to keep up with all the tools, right? So if you have a very large team, you can have lots of people specializing and you can be, you can be best practice up and down the stack. But, but otherwise, um, yeah, I guess I just want folks to know that, uh, that it's okay. It's okay to be learning. And, and a shameless plug is for anybody out there who um, already knows the answers or recognizes uh, that we are still learning. We would appreciate your, um, if you have the time, please volunteer with us. Bring your expertise in to our stack and help us improve what we have uh, to allow us to better serve students who don't have anywhere else to go to get ready for careers. Right. That sounds like a, a great cause, and I'll be sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. So, Jared, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you for having me. Before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? First off, careervillage.org, careervillage on Twitter, careervillage on Facebook, careervillage on Instagram. And um, generally, I tend to be Jared Chung on all those places as well. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.